Chapter Two, Part Five of Mortish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mortish by Mary Robert Schreinhardt. Chapter Two, Part Five. Because the incident I am about to relate concerns not only registration day, but also Mr. Culver and the secret in the barn, I have been some time in getting to it. And if in so doing I have reflected at any time, either in Tish's patriotism or in strict veracity, I am sorry. No one who knows Tish can doubt either. In spite of Aggie, in spite of Trotty Sands, who protested violently that he distinctly remembered being born in the evening, because he had yelled all the ensuing night, and no one had had a wink of sleep. In spite of all this, Tish remained firm in her conviction that 7 a.m. on registration day, when the precincts opened, would find him too old to register. On the surface, the days that followed passed uneventfully. Tish sewed and knitted, and once each day stood Aggie and myself on the outskirts of her garden, and pointed out things which she said would be green corn, and tomatoes, and peppers, and so on. But there was a set look about her face, to those of us who knew and loved her. She had moments of abstraction, too, and during one of them weeded out an entire row of spring onions, according to Hannah. On the 3rd of June I went into the jewelers to have my watch regulated and found Tish at the counter. She muttered something about a mainspring and went out, leaving me staring after her. I am no idiot, however, although not Tish's mental equal by any means, and I saw that she had been looking at gentlemen's gold watches. I had a terrible thought that she intended trying to purchase Charlie Sands by gift, but I might have known her high integrity. She would not stoop to a bribe, and as a matter of fact, happening to stop at the Ostermeyers' that evening, to show Mrs. Ostermeyer how to pearl, I found that dear Tish, remembering the anniversary of his first sermon to us, had presented Mr. Ostermeyer with a handsome watch. It was on the 4th of June that I had another visit from Charlie Sands. He is usually a most amiable young man, but on that occasion he came in glowering savagely, and on sitting down on Aggie's knitting, which was on steel needles, he flung it across the room, and had to spend quite a little time apologizing. "'The truth is,' he said, "'I'm so blooming upset that I'm not myself. Let me put these needles back, won't you? Or do they belong in some particular place?' "'They do,' Aga retorted grimly. "'And for a young man who will be thirty-two tomorrow morning—' evening he corrected her with a sort of groan i see she's got you too look here he went on i'm in trouble and i'm blessed if i see my way out i want to register tomorrow i may not be drawn because i'm an unlucky devil and always was but i want to do my bit well i observed tartly i guess no one can prevent you. Go and do it, and say nothing. Not at all, he replied, getting up and striding up and down the room. Not a bit of it, 
I grant you it looks simple. Won't anyone in his senses think that a young and able-bodied man could go and put his name down as willing to serve his country? Why, she herself, she's crazy to go. I'd like to bet a hat she'll get there before long, too, and into the front trenches. Oh, no, Aggie wailed suddenly. But not I, went on Charlie Sands fiercely. Not I. How she ever got around that old fool Ostermeyer, I don't know. But she has. He's appointed her an assistant register in his precinct, which is mine. And she'll swear until she's black in the face that I'm overage. Can't you have the place open before seven in the morning? I suggested. I've been to him, but he says the law is seven o'clock. Besides, he added bitterly, she knows me, and as like as not, she'll sleep there to be on hand to forestall me. As I look back, I'm convinced that a desire to do his bit, as he termed it, was only a part of his anger that evening. The rest was the feeling that Tish's superior acumen had foiled him. He had a truly masculine hatred of being thwarted by a woman, even by a beloved aunt. Well, he said at last, picking up his hat, I'll be off. He went to the door, but turned back and glowered at us both although I am sure we had done nothing whatever. But mark my words, and remind her of them the day after tomorrow. This thing's not over yet. She's pretty devilish clever. I regret to record this word, but he was greatly excited. But she hasn't all the brains in the family. For a day that was to contain so much, however, the 5th of June started quietly enough. We telephoned Hannah, and she reported that Tish had left the house at 5.30, although obliged to go only one block to the engine house, which was her destination. So far as I can learn, for Tish is very uncommunicative about the entire matter, the morning passed quietly enough. She had taken the precaution of having her folding car table and two pillows sent to the engine house, and when Aggie and I arrived at midday, she was seated comfortably, with a hat hung on a lamp of the fire-truck. When we arrived, she was asking the sexton of the Methodist Church, whom she has known for thirty years, if he had lost a leg or an arm. Aggie had brought a basket with some luncheon for her, and she placed it on the truck. But there was an alarm of fire soon after, and the thing went out in a rush with the luncheon also with Tish's hat. Tish was furiously angry. Indeed, I have since thought that much of what followed was due to the loss of the luncheon, which the firemen declared they had not seen, although Aggie was positive she saw one of them eating one of the doughnuts that afternoon behind a newspaper. But worst of all, Tish's hat was missing. It reappeared later, however, but was brought in by the engine house dog after having been run over by the chief's machine, two engines, and a ladder truck. As I say, that was part of her irritation. But what really upset her was the number of married men. More than once, as she grew excited, I heard her say, Married? How many wives? But of course she meant, how many children? She had registered twenty-four married men and two single ones by one o'clock, 
and she was looking very discouraged. But at one o'clock the clerk from the shoe store at the corner came in, and said he had dependent on him a wife, four children, a mother-in-law, a sister-in-law, and his sister-in-law's husband. Of course, Tish said bitterly, you claim exemption. Me, he said, me, Miss Carberry, my God, no. Well, about two o'clock, Charlie Sands came in. Tish saw him the moment he entered the door, and stopped work to watch him, but he made no attempt to register. He said he was doing a column of slackers for the next morning's paper. There's aren't many, he said, but of course there are some. The license court is the place to nail them. Do you mean to tell me, Tish demanded, that there are traitors in this country who are getting married today? There are, said Charlie Sands, sitting down on the fire truck. Even so, beloved aunt, they're getting married so they can claim exemption because of a dependent wife. And I'll bet the orphan asylums are full of fellows trying to get ready-made families. Tish is a composed and self-restrained woman, but she spoke so distinctly of how she felt about such conduct that Charlie Murray, our grocer's assistant, who has four children, did not so much as mention them when she made out his card. Of course, Charlie Sands observed, I don't want to dictate to you, because you're doing all that can be expected of you now. But if someone would go to the license court and tell those fellows a bit of wholesome truth, it might be valuable. You do it, Lizzie, Tish said. I? I never made a speech in my life, Tish Carberry, and you know it. And I never before tried to get the truth from an idiot who says he's twenty-eight and has a daughter of eighteen. See here, Tish said to a man in front of her, waving her pen and throwing a circle of ink about. I'll have you know that I represent the government today. If you think you are being funny, you are not. Well, it turned out that he had married a widow with a child, but had a cork leg anyhow, so it made no difference. But Tish's mind was not on her work. However, she was undecided until Charlie Sands said, By the way, I saw your friend Culver among the Cupid chasers today, and this is his district. You'd better round him up. Culver, Tish said. Do you mean that? Lacey, where's my hat? Well, we had to recover it again from the engine house dog, whom we found burying it in the backyard. Tish's mind, however, was far away, and she merely brushed it absently with her hand and stuck it on her head. Then she turned to Charlie Sands. I'm going to the license court, she said between clenched teeth, and I am going to show that young fool that he is not going to hide behind petticoats today. It's his privilege to get married if he wants to. When I finish with him, said Tish grimly, he won't want to. All the way to the courthouse, Tish's lips were moving, and I knew she was rehearsing what she meant to say. I think that even then her shrewd and active mind had some foreboding of what was to come, for she called back unexpectedly at Aggie. Look in the right-hand pocket and see if there's a box of tacks there. Tacks? said Aggie. Why, what in the world? 
I had tacks to nail up flags this morning. Well? They're here, Tish, but no hammer. I shan't need a hammer, Tish replied cryptically. I'm afraid I had expected Tish to lead the way into the license court and break out into patriotic fury. But how little after all I knew her. Already in that wonderful brain of hers was sitting the plot which was so to alter certain lives, and was to leave an officer of the law. But that comes later on. End of chapter 2, part 5 Recording by Winna Hathaway in Fayetteville, North Carolina.